Hey, John. Hey, Marcy. How's it going? It's good. I miss you. I know. I'm so sorry. I actually I'm not sorry. Everyone gets to gets to hear from Anjanette, an honorary pop culture theologian who knows everything there is to know about the royals. She's as obsessed as I am. So um, I know it was so good to have her, but I'm glad to be back for a few. I'm glad you're back too. I just love talking to you. I know. I know. I love, I love talking to me too. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely don't, which is what's funny. Um, But I do love talking to you. So um, before we get started, John, in case there's any new listeners, why don't we tell everyone who we are? Wonderful. Well, welcome everyone back to the Pop Culture Theologians. Um, We are two academics who worship at the altar of pop culture, but decide to throw every piece into that, into our academic training, which is obviously religion. Um, But we find uh, discussing our favorite television shows, um, our favorite movies. Um, We still haven't forgiven you Crimes of Grindelwald, but more on that later. Um, And understanding how we really just love to put our academic excellence into a, a way in which we can get it out to the masses because everyone loves pop culture. So you can um, make sure you're following us on uh, Facebook and Twitter at Pop Culture Theologians um, and Pop Theologians on Twitter. Um, And then also make sure you're up there watching our host site, The Engaged Gaze, um, where this really stemmed out of, uh, like, I think it was phase two of our programming with our uh, sister podcast, Bible Bitches, Marcy. Yep. Uh, We originally were just writing, which actually, I think we've talked about phase three, like doing some more writing. Um, But yeah, no, we just kind of were like, hey, like we're talking a lot about pop theology in blog posts. What if we just talked about it like over drinks on a podcast? And that's how this happened. Or if in our cases, just copious amounts of coffee at this point. Agreed. I'm eating nachos as we speak. So it's what we do. (laughs) Okay, Marcy. What the f*** happened this week? Oh my gosh, John. Before we get to that, do you want to share your very basic Twitter handle for people to follow you at? <laughs> oh my God. I thought you were going to let me forget about that one and not Never. be shamed. Never. Well, everyone, yes, if you want to follow me on the interwebs, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter um, at jerickson85. It's fairly basic. I love it. Um, but nevertheless, that's where we're at. Marcy, where can we follow you? So there's been a little bit of change, but you can still follow me on Instagram at Magdalena on fire and on Twitter. I am at Martha Ovidia. So like my full name, uh, you can find it on Engage Gaze. Uh, I decided to consolidate. Uh, I had like three Twitter accounts for three different uh, versions of myself and realized that that was really unnecessary. (laughs) So um, yeah, it was a lot. So, so getting back to your question, John. Yeah, what the <laughs> happened this week? <laughs> so a lot happened this week, uh, and we're actually going to have a little bit of politics and then a little bit of fun. So the first one is not fun. Uh, if you've been watching the news, police raided the home of a former former Florida COVID data scientist here in my state, my beautiful state of dysfunction. Uh, so Rebecca Jones, who had been tracking COVID data in Florida had been told to stop tracking data in Florida. I will let you guys ask yourselves why that would be necessary. And when she refused to stop reporting on what was very suspicious and dubious information coming out of Florida's um, healthcare system uh, and reporting kind of around the state, uh, she got her house raided 
like she was in some type of fascist regime. I don't know, something similar to uh, to The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, she had a gun pointed to her face. Her children had guns in their um, pointed towards them and they took her computer and her phones and um if that's not a threat on your life for telling the truth i don't know what is um so she is an absolute baller she has said just let me get another computer and a phone because i'm not going to stop uh which is incredible for folks wondering what the discrepancies in the data look like uh florida has been accused and um i think this is I feel fairly confident in saying that this is a very accurate accusation that uh, the deaths in Florida have been miscounted and appropriated into other uh, death categories. So if you look at Florida, we've had like four times the normal folks dying of pneumonia this year, uh, particularly in retirement homes and some of our elderly communities. And the reason for that is obviously COVID shuts down a lot of your systems. It's respiratory. Uh, you can say someone died of, of pneumonia, but they died of COVID. Uh, pneumonia was a COVID complication. So um, that is a way in which the state has been able to circumvent accountability for how bad our numbers are here. Um, but as someone who has loved ones in the medical system in Florida, the numbers here are terrifying. The spread is terrifying. And uh, we need to really lift up heroes like Rebecca Jones doing the work on the ground. It's terrifying um and you know marcy and i are separated by a lot of states which breaks my heart um which is why we need to get her back to california because she lives 100%. in florida um but ultimately even here in california we see people shutting down things that don't cause spread but ultimately when we're actually looking at it it's people continuing to have house parties not wear masks uh you know it is quite incredible to see the sheer what is it ignorance, arrogance of people that refuse to take public health or this pandemic seriously. And one so thing I consider it, me. I consider it a crime against humanity. I'm going to be it is. honest. Um, well, you, it, it, is. Is, it is a type of genocide of the elderly, of the disabled and those with um, chronic illness. It is a complete disregard for human life by, by a party that claims to be pro-life. Um, and it's illegal. Fundamentally, it is illegal. It is authoritarian to shut down a whistleblower in that way. Um, so my, my only hope is that there's justice. Do I anticipate justice in the near future? No. But, um, but I will say there's something to be said about the fact that generally here on the ground in Florida, people are horrified by what has happened. Mm -hmm. um, so. And it's, well, I just want to say that in listening to podcasts or reading articles about the vaccine push with all of the ways in which, you know, thankfully we're here at such an expedited pace. Um, the, the sheer distrust of the government, thanks to these individuals that constantly make and discredit science, we are going to have a lot more work ahead of us because people um, refuse to get vaccinated. And so here we are with another crime against humanity and understanding the ways in which we are going to have people, even once we have a vaccine, sit there and say no. And you know, as I heard today on a call regarding um, in the United Kingdom, someone said, well, if Boris Johnson takes it live on video, then I will, but I don't trust that mother. So I'm not going to take it. And that's just unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. Um, so moving on to lighter yet, <laughs> so really salty news of this week. Um, the Selena series dropped on Netflix. 
Um, and I, I'm actually of two minds of this and I want to share both because I know that overarchingly the, um, the Latinx community in general, um, has been really like, what the fuck is this? Like, and there's a lot of fairness to every critique that's being, um, launched against, uh, the production of the show. Um, I am Latina, but I am not Chicana, though I was raised by, uh, in conjunction with like the uh, Mexican-American community in California. So I'm very protective of Selena as well. Um, the costumes suck. The, the lead casting is not great. The dialogue is so, so horrendous. And when you put it up, I look, I wasn't expecting to get the crown, um, but I definitely wasn't expecting a show that would make the dialogue of season one of Schitt's Creek look like it was like, worthy of like an Oscar. Um, it's, it's really kind of, um, it's a shame. I think there was a ton of potential to do, to do right by Selena and to do right by her story. And I don't, I don't think that um, happened, particularly from a funding perspective. I think like, um, you can see that it was like, I, it's rough. Um, <laughs> if you just Google some of the wigs and some of the dialogue, just some of the scenes, it is rough. What I do want to counteract with is there's been a lot of critique on the fact that it focuses on her family and not just her. And I'm like, yes, that is actually what it is like to be a Latino in the U.S. I have no understanding of my existence outside of my family and my larger family. Uh, I... I would sleep, we would rent cabins, but like 12 of us would sleep in there. Uh, we would take road trips and it'd be like 15 of us stuck in an expedition, like a Ford expedition. Um, my success is my family's success. My, like there is this beautiful embracing of a very specific type of immigrant family unit in the show that like, I'm glad that they showed that Selena and her success was a communal success. And like, yes, was she the star? Yes, but if, but if you look at the whole picture, Selena is a story of a family beating every odd in the US to become the American dream, a family. She's the face of it, but like to, to count out, you know, her brother AB and Abraham and her sister Suzette, um, and to kind of be like, they should have been invisible in the back. They weren't invisible in the creation of Selena and Los Dinos. And they definitely were not invisible in the, in the journey that Selena took to become like the reina of Tejano music. And to become what is effectively the most iconic, you know, um, I wouldn't even say Chicana, Latina star in, in my living history. So, so I think I'm of two minds. Did I watch the whole thing? Yeah. Did I bitch the whole time about like, where the hell was the money for production and writing? Yeah. But did I also see my brother and my cousins and I reflected in the show? Also, yeah. So that's how I felt I, about it. Can I be vulnerable? Yeah. I'm not a Selena person. Oh my God. I can't believe we're going to have to stop podcasting together. I mean, like, I know you're older than me. <gasps> By like months. <laughs> like born in February, I was in September. <laughs> that <laughs> oh, is a whole season get... of of astrological signs in between us. No, oh my God. I don't know why. I and I blame my white supremacist, like gonna, Wisconsin no, it's, it's... white upbringing. You know, like I wasn't up. up I mean, raised look, by white there's... supremacists, but you know what I mean. Like, there's literally jokes. 
in the show about them really wanting to go to like Minnesota so that they could go to the Mall of America. And the dad's like, who the heck is waiting to hear Selena in Minneapolis, right? So am I surprised that she didn't have the impact in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, as she did, you know, I, I grew up in the Valley of Los Angeles, like something on the Valley, like, you know, that's not, that is not surprising. Do I think you need an education in Selena? Yes, but I can totally do that for you. No, because- and I've followed her and I understand that. I think that's why your point is so well taken. And it's like how we resonate on videos or, or things of that really mean a lot to us in our upbringing. Like I obviously have those, but when we see it, of course, is it bad? Yes, but do we still love it? Of course, do we watch it? Yes, you know, it's kind of like, you know, going back to the understanding of how these things play a really role in our upbringing. A hundred percent, but that does not mean your view is acceptable. She's a queer icon as well, and we will work on it, John. We will, I will watch Glitter if you- (gasps) No, don't do that, it's the holidays. Don't watch a horror movie. The most terrifying movie. (laughs) Moving on to our third and final what the fuck happened this week before we get into the crown. Um, We just want to give a shout out to another uh, female icon, queer icon, icon for all the ages, the namesake of (laughs) my beloved service dog, Dolly Parton. Um, So Dolly Parton uh, funded uh, part of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. And am I surprised? No. Do I want her to get a Presidential Medal of Freedom? Yes. Why? Because she's everything. Like Dolly from day one has been an advocate for so many folks. She has bridged so many barriers when it came to like queer rights to Black Lives Matter in, you know, in an audience that was probably not ready to hear that message. Uh, An absolute feminist icon. So we just wanted to give a shout out to Dolly Parton. Carve her face in Mount Rushmore. Remove the, you know, slave. Remove all the men and just put Dolly. Truckers, you know, put Dolly. (laughs) We'll put Selena up there. I'll give you this one. Put her up there too. I really appreciate. I really appreciate that one. Um, We can do Dolly. We can do Selena. We can do Whitney. There's plenty of there's there's plenty of people. Shania, no, we don't like Shania anymore, right? No, Shania is a huge MAGA hat. No, oh, she's canceled. canceled. Hashtag team canceled. Bye. She can go on whatever garbage heap JK Rowling is going on. Oh my God. <laughs> so um, this is a long episode. It's a complicated episode. Uh, we're going to do it the same way we did the first episode, uh, which is kind of highlighting five uh, main themes. This one's easy to do because this is the episode where the queen recognizes that she doesn't know her children. So we'll talk a little bit about Thatcher and the Falklands War, and then we're actually going to just break down the interactions that the queen had with her children in this episode, episode four, entitled Favorites. All right, John. So narratively speaking, this episode weaves a lot of things in and out but we're going to do it like we've done it before. Um, And so the first kind of theme that we're going to touch on is women must be men to be women in this world. Yes, especially in a Thatcher world. Especially in a Thatcher world. Um, It was interesting watching this one and simultaneously feeling a sense of sympathy for Thatcher and her internalized misogyny and also being like, but like, fuck you. Like, it's just enough, Karen. 
like enough. Um, so we open up with this incredible scene of Thatcher meeting with the queen, like all the other prime ministers. Um, clearly she came in and was like, your majesty. And she um, curtsied down to the floor. I know. <laughs> That's like my new favorite move. I've been doing it every time Brent comes into the house. That is the only way you're allowed to greet me now. I, as as it should be. Um, so they're breaking down like the week to week politics like they usually do. And Thatcher's like clearly shaken up. And like the queen who obviously we know from previous episodes does not deal well with emotions. is like, are you <laughs> That's okay? saying the least. She's kind of like offended <laughs> by emotions. And see, there's a part of me that thinks that that is absolutely true. Do I think she has lived a very strange life that may have stunted her emotional growth? Sure. Do I think that Peter Morgan is dead set on convincing us that the queen has no emotions and empathy? Also true. Um, and so, so I always try to take, obviously, as Netflix would like us to do, this is all a dramatic recreation of things that we don't know happened, that we know happened in context of like a historical kind of overview. There we go. For anyone who's like, it's not real. It's not a documentary. We know. We know. Yeah. Uh, we know. Neither was the passion of Christ, yet y'all didn't require any type of like banner. Did you have to see that as part of CCD? Like, did you have to take your school trip? Sweetheart, I was in a cult. I used to watch it for fun. <laughs> Got it. Never mind. Mm. Hang on. Yeah. Uh, so, so Thatcher's talking, but she gets a little emotional, right? And the queen's like, Oh dear, are you okay? Something like that, right? And Thatcher tells her that her son is missing. <laughs> he was doing some race from Paris to Dakar in Senegal, something like that. And he goes missing for a week and they haven't seen him. And, and then she does this thing, which I really, really understood, um, which was she's tearing up and she's like, I am so sorry, I cannot believe I can't do it in her voice. I cannot believe I'm the first person to cry in here. And the queen gives her this look like, but you're not the first person to cry in here. Like Winston Churchill cried in here. Like you're fine. Was, right. I've seen but it all. Like you're like my idiot. I've seen friend. it all. But there is something to be said about that moment that all women can relate to, which is we are asked to performatively uh, mimic toxic masculinity, which doesn't let you feel anything at all. Yep. And we are blessed enough to not intrinsically uh, be indoctrinated with toxic masculinity. So we do actually have connections to our feelings, though um, some more than others. Uh, so there's this relatable moment of like, here's this woman who's like, yo, this is the pinnacle of my career. I'm at Buckingham Palace. I'm sitting in the same chair that Winston Churchill sat. And I'm crying because today's a hard day. And I think that there's a beauty in the Queen, because I think the Queen still wants to see herself reflected in Margaret Thatcher and her power and that they have something in common, right? Um, so, so what makes this kind of tragic is that Margaret Thatcher does not extend any of that kindness to, to anyone, particularly women, but to anyone, right? Like, She's, she's a typical still like, conservative. Right. She's still Margaret Thatcher and she's the queen of Thatcherism and no handouts, no bootstrappies, no feelings. Uh, even when the queen was like, do you need a drink? She's like, whisk. Right. And it's like, um, yeah, I thought of like that Carrie Underwood song, right. Where she's like making fun of the girl who requests whiskey. Cause she thinks the boys thinks it's cool. Um, 
So, so yeah, an interesting, interesting conversation between them that eventually kind of leads to the premise of this entire episode. Um, later on, we see as the Falkland War starts to develop assumptions that she's making decisions because she's emotional, right? Um, which I think is, ties into this first scene really well. Um, but in this first scene, when talking about her son, um, what's his name, Mark? Mark. 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 Um, she, Mark. She clearly states that he's her favorite son. She goes, even though yeah, the, it wasn't even just like a statement. She goes, uh, yeah, he's my favorite. My favorite. And she and, has twins, by the way. Like, there's no difference. Like, she didn't have him longer. Like, Right, right. They, literally, they were both born. They both came out in glory. And she's like, I'll take the boy. Um, I'll take this one. I'll take this one. Uh, and then sets up what inevitably becomes the, the arc of this episode, which is later uh, the Queen and Philip, which we've gotten a lot more scenes of them kind of interacting as a couple at night. Um, just the, the downloads, right? The like, let's chat about what happened during the day. And like when she recounts to Philip in her horror that Thatcher had no problem being like, Mark is my favorite. He's really not surprised by this. And he was like, everyone has a favorite. And when she's like, who's yours? He's like, and I'm like, yeah, like, we, yes, like, we know that. Um, so then uh, the queen kind of, like we talked about, uh, says like, oh, I don't know. And Philip's like, everyone knows who your favorite is, but refuses to, to tell her. Hint, hint, it's the pedophile. Hint, um, hint it's the creepy <laughs> one. It's the, what, how do they say it in the UK? It's a pedophile. It's a pedophile. Uh, Prince pedophile. Andrew. Uh, but she's bothered that she doesn't know and he doesn't tell her. So she decides she's going to find out. But first she has to ask her secretary for some files on her children because she doesn't know shit about them. I love this. I loved, <laughs> oh, this was a great scene. I mean, the acting, Olivia Coleman like really came into her own this season in the show. Um, I agree. And last season was like a warm up. She did great, but the material last season was really bad. And so like it, like this season's like the juicy stuff. Um, because if you've seen the favorite, you know how she kind of does with this like melodramatic campiness. Um, and so like, but when she goes in and out, in and out of her secretary's room, and then all of a sudden she goes back in one more time and she's like, but you know, like I wouldn't want to be rude. So like, how can I get some briefing memos on these individuals? Like tell me what they'll be up to and make sure none of them know that I'm meeting with all of them. Right, right, which I thought was just so, uh, so it's a fun setup for an episode that's unnecessary. Like I would consider, I would consider this like kind of wanting to like weave the Falkland Wars in and out um, with something more interesting and some character development, but there is some character development in here. Um, but before we get to um, the X-Files on her children, we find out that Margaret's son was found and he's an idiot, his dad tells him so. And um, he's super ungrateful for the folks who led like a 10 day search for him, right? Um, and still, when we're watching this scene develop, Thatcher is just pouring herself over Mark. She's just like making him food and like wiping his face. And like her daughter, Carol, is there being like super dutiful and helpful. And you really get a sense of like, Margaret Thatcher has some type of fundamental issue with women, which her daughter then lets us in on because they get into a fight. Yeah. So Carol calls out Thatcher and says, we're twins. 
like you said, like we're twins and you can't even like, you can't even front, like you can't even pretend. And she says, um, she says to her, like, I think the trauma that you had with your mom is affecting our relationship and your views of all women, which is super insightful, right? For a character. That's a lot of, again, that is not trusting us with insight. That is just giving it to us. But I found that helpful to understand a little bit. And historically, um, Thatcher had a sister as well that she didn't get along with. She really, truly just got along with her father, you know, who really taught her, you know, probably invented Thatcherism when you think about it. You know, there's no handouts from your bootstraps, you know, no feelings or empathy. You have to lead and, you know, understanding first and foremost that like, you know, almost I think women are too emotional. And so he kind of, I think, shut that out of her. Well, Carol asked her mom, why Mark? And she goes, because he's strong, period. Right, so it is a gender essentialism there that she probably idolized in her father, right? But then she gives like the coldest burn. She looks at her daughter after saying, well, Mark's the strong one and goes, there's a limit to what one can do if people are themselves limited. AKA, I can't force myself to love you if you're like just so pathetic. Yeah. Like, I Ooh. have to love you, but, like, I don't, like... It's, like, hard work. Yeah. It's work right. to love you. It's that statement, like, you know, it's really hard to love you. Oh. And since we know that Peter Morgan is drawing these parallels between the Queen and, and um, Margaret Thatcher, we get some insight into the interviews we will get of Andrew, Charles, and Edward when Mark resembles them. He's spoiled. He's unaware of his awfulness. Um, he's fundamentally a critique that bad motherhood and white supremacy spoil white men, not their money. Does the money help? Yes. But, but I think it's really important to note that like, here's a woman who grew up with nothing, who also like raised a terrible son who is entitled and dripping in white supremacy and misogyny. And the foils are the queen's children who had everything monetarily and also were spoiled not by the money but by a motherhood that instilled misogyny and white supremacy in their children so mm-hmm. uh, i thought that was an interesting kind of um and mark gets to be in the house of lords i'm pretty sure he's a lord as a result of yes the hereditary yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff that comes down with her his mother being margaret thatcher yep so then we get a scene which we recognize from politics 2020 which is Thatcher then uses the rescue of Mark in a press conference to to kind of use her motherhood as the shield and this tactic of how conservative women are also warm and lobbying and whatever. And um, and it's an interesting thing to see when we're watching that play out right now, right? Like we're watching that play out right now with, um, I would say Ivanka Trump is a very good example of someone who wields her family as a cover for being um, an absolute goblin right yeah idiot goblin i don't think she's smart it's like you know it's like even with racism remember when like you have all these republicans that would say horrible things this summer and then i remember what was it there was a scene in the house before like where a guy said you know i have a black nephew or something like that and and the guy was like huh like that doesn't make you not a racist or you know it's just like the ways in which these people use their families as shield. That's kind of the perfect example is the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez situation where that guy called her a bitch. Right. And then he used like 
her, his family against her to like shield him. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's an interesting look at Thatcher and her children and, uh, the comparison to Do you want to know the, the best thing? Tell I don't me. know if you know this. So, you know, the other favorite Thatcher movie with Margaret, uh, with Margaret Thatcher, where Meryl Streep plays her? Uh, what is that? The Iron Lady? Yes, who plays Carol? Who plays Carol? Olivia Coleman. Get the fuck. Wow. Murder. So when you think about it, it's so amazing because you look at how all of these things, it was just a really interesting tidbit if our listeners don't know that. For sure, for sure. So, um, oh, I love that. So now we're going to do two, three, four, and five. We're just going to talk about each of the children's meetings because all I think that's the best. favorite children. Yep, and then we'll, get a, we'll give a verdict. We'll rate the children one to 10 at the end of each child and then rate our own favorite child before we get to the end. So okay, um, let's start with, with Charles, uh, yes. do you want to walk us through a little bit of where he's at when we, we get to his, his lunch with his mother? So the worst Prince Charming in all of creation, um, Charles, uh, you know, it's always about him. It's always about Charles and, you know, but it's always about, you know, things being done to him versus what could be done for him. And it's, you know, Diana's mental health, um, because remember they're married now, um, is really declining. Um, she is pregnant with Prince, um, William, right? Yeah, she's pregnant in the episode. And, you know, she refuses to come down with Charles um, for the lunch with the queen um, because she is pregnant. But ultimately, um, she knows what's going on between him and Camilla still and the type of not only mental anguish she is facing, but also also emotional and physical just lead their relationship to be pure hell. And they're living together away from people. So it's always lots of fun to see that, but we really see the relationship because he calls her pathetic. Um, yeah. This was like one of, I think if you've ever um, read or watched the documentary um, Morton's documentary on Diana, like in her own words, this was by far the darkest time in her life um i actually think they were very respectful to not show some of the darker stuff so like during this exact time period uh diana herself has said that she threw herself yeah. downstairs while pregnant in a desperation to kind of end it all so while the critique's been like you're hurting the royal family by showing this like there's nuances to what they're showing i think that that was a good line to draw that like we don't need to see her. like seeing her refusing to see the queen and just in bed in what is effectively a depression nest. Like we got this, we got the picture. Like, um, but, but historically a terrible. With what? what? They, they were kind with what they did not show because they could have showed a lot. Right. And I, I think, um, I think the accusations that they've used a lot of scandalous stuff, like I don't think they've used the scandalous stuff yet. So like, to be fair, I've watched this whole season and who knows how next season plays out, but like there's a lot more that could be out here that isn't. So, um, so yeah, but definitely a tragic time in Diana's life and she does not want to come down for this, like get to know my son lunch. Yeah. She's like, I don't need to be there. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. And so the um, queen arrives for their lunch and, you know, the queen interprets Diana being out as having a tough pregnancy um, because it seems like she... The acting is almost like she's not in on the secret, but I don't know. I feel like the queen knows. I feel like the queen always knows, but maybe she doesn't, or she's just willfully ignorant. What do you think? 
I think she's willfully selective. Yes. So I think if she has the bandwidth emotionally to challenge them, she will. But for the most part, um, she even says it somewhere in this episode, like, I don't like to meddle. And I do think that there's a truth there of like, she's, I remember her telling uh, Margaret, she wasn't going to meddle, but when she did, she did. And similar things here. So she has this thing where she thinks she's an, she's not a meddler and yet a hundred percent she is. Um, so, but when they walk through Highgrove and Charles talks to her, we get a sense that she she actually does have some opinions on how Charles is doing. Yeah. And, you know, Charles is a, such a brat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's where, and we'll talk about this, but, you know, we'll talk about it at the end about who her favorite is. But, you know, the scenes are really difficult um, between her and Charles and everyone else. It seems like it gets a little bit more laxed in a way because the queen holds Charles, I think, in a different standard, but um, for whatever reason that she has to. But then so they walk um, through these unco- the, these wild and unconventionality of the gardens that like excite him. Um, you know, he hates straight lines and rules. Um, unlike his mother, he wants to live in the free and the now. Um, but, you know, she's sarcastic and unamused and she's like, yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, he calls it his Shangri-La and Xanadu, but really has no mention of Diana. They don't talk about her at all, which is very telling. Um, you know, and it seems like, and we all catch this as viewers, that he cares about everything else. And then Diana. And then all of a sudden he starts complaining about her because why not complain about your pregnant wife who is seriously having a hard and difficult time? Um, You are not hiding your affair from. Yes, at all. And then talk about how, you know, he calls her basically stupid. And so now he's- Use the words. He says intellectually inferior. You know, he's not the worst, but now he's not only the worst Prince Charming of all time, he's the worst mansplainer of all time. Oh, when he was like, I've tried explaining Shakespeare to her, but she just says she misses the city. I'm like, if you sat me down to explain Shakespeare, I would punch you in the face. Um, Yeah. But here's where the queen shows her cards, I think. Yeah, so the queen straightforward, like she's like, listen, um, that it's obvious that he is out in Gloucestershire because Camilla is there. Um, so it's like, I see you, sis. Like, I know exactly what you're doing out here. I know exactly who you're doing out here. And let's be real. Um, the queen has no patience for it and comes to Diana's defense that Charles's priorities are out of whack. This is really similar to our first episode with Dickie, where he's like, you have to find a wife to do X, Y, and Z, because if you don't, you will be screwed. And, you know, they all are trying to tell Charles what to do and he doesn't want to do it because he thinks he's smarter, but ultimately he becomes what they all tell him he's going to become. Um, And, you know, and she tells him to be more concerned with the duty of worrying about the mother of a future child, AKA the King um, versus actually, you know, this stupid affair with Camilla and all of the stuff that it is. Right. So our final verdict on this lunch, I don't think this lunch went well. No. (laughs) What did that briefing memo say, I wonder? Right. I think that briefing memo could say, easily, your majesty, we can at least assure you this one is not your favorite. Um, I I just think it's really clear that from from last season, like, um, he's just not her. She she doesn't believe in him. I don't think she particularly likes him. But I also think, and we've talked about this before, the crown is an... possible position to be in in front of another crown right so like 
the queen's death is the only way Charles gets to fulfill his destiny. So like that's a tension with a mother that you're never going to get over. And then your, your child, your progeny, which we see this in this calling out of Charles by, by the queen, like now his responsibility is to father a future king, even though he's a future king. So I just think it just sets them up. Like we talked about in the first episode for very unhealthy, like family relationships but I would say as a son, you're going to laugh. As a son, I think he's probably the highest ranked one. I think he goes eight out of 10 for me. Uh, how the queen feels about him, one out of 10. I just think she's think constantly disappointed by him. I think he's a good son. I don't think he's a good husband, but I do think he's a good son. Uh, I just don't think the queen likes him very much. Yeah, I'm going to give him a seven out of 10. Um, cause I know that will really goad him at the end of the day. Um, you know, I just, I think that the queen wants Charles to be her favorite, but she can't bring herself to wanting, wanting him as her favorite because he's just such a piece of shit. <laughs> he's just such shit. Because she sees him. Ultimately, I think she sees his wild whoring as I'm going to call it as what she stopped herself from having to experience with Philip. Well, with Porchy, right? She really loved Porchy and like, um, and also think, she had yeah. to just work around Philip and who he was. And, and also like the queen is a, and give it up to the queen. I mean, she's a symbol of white supremacy and all these other things, but the queen's entire life has been in service of the crown and she cannot wrap her head around her son's inability to understand that type of a sacrifice. Whether or not I think that's good or bad or healthy or not, they just have two very different views on what, what is, what is required of a sovereign. Exactly. Right. Um, and we've seen this throughout history. We've seen sovereigns that are like die to self and we've seen sovereigns who are like, I'll make my own church. Uh, so t- totally within the history of, of the British crown. So moving on to her, her lunch with Anne, Philip's favorite. Philip's favorite. Philip's favorite. Um, and kind of your favorite a little bit. A little bit. She is, uh, she is actually uh, my favorite. So they picnic together. They're out on her estate. It's a rainy day. Horses. It's like the perfect day. Um, but then we get beautiful some English of- weather. Beautiful English weather, beautiful reading weather. But we do get some kind of like weird dialogue from Anne that doesn't jive with the historical Anne that we know. And that's some of the problem that we're having, which I had with Selena, which is actually I lived through this. Uh, So it's kind of weird. Like Anne definitely does not care about the paparazzi. She was never jealous of Diana. Like we don't have any historical precedent for that. And I've read so many royal biographies and it's just not there. But Anne was like, the paparazzi are everywhere and I hate him, which she did. Uh, she didn't give her kids titles in hopes of them having normal lives. But then she says that because she asked the paparazzi, paparazzi to fuck off once, they now think she's the mean one and Diane is the nice one. She's the dumpy one and Diane is the gorgeous one. Um, I don't, that just doesn't read right to me on her. What does read right to me is a bit of an exhaustion of being the hardest working royal, which is true. Uh, every year, uh, Buckingham Palace puts out a list of how many hours of service have been worked by uh, working royals. And Anne is always like literally just like a workhorse. That woman does more charity work on the ground, not just like blessing and cutting ribbons, but like a ton of work than anyone else. And then she's like, and you know, all it takes is some wearing a pretty dress and then that's considered work. Um, and 
I'll be honest, there's some there's some shades of kind of the pitting Kate Middleton against uh, Meghan Markle here that I find really interesting. Um, I think that there was a desire from some parts of the Royal Rota to keep things very norm uh, and to pit, you know, here's Meghan trying to break free and do all this work and like she doesn't understand her role as a royal. Um, we like Kate who just kind of shows up in a pretty dress and stays silent and whatnot, which isn't true. They've both done like really amazing work, but the pitting of, of, of royal women against each other, we definitely understand. And we saw it with Margaret and the queen as well. So, yeah. This but then she also, she also lets in that her marriage is not doing well. Right. Yeah. And everyone seems to like her, uh, her husband. Well, I mean, that's the hardest type of marriage to be stuck in, where it's like you're the only one who's unhappy, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, this family isn't one to address unhappy marriages anyway. Right? Yeah. So it's stiff upper Three lip, get through it. What? Three out of four of her kids have been divorced. Right. Right. So uh, she, the queen tells her there's been some some gossip that she is sleeping with one of the one of the military dudes that I guess like is at her estate or providing security. I don't know. And in light of the rumors, they want to transfer him. And, Anne, in a very vulnerable moment that reminded me a lot of Margaret begging Elizabeth not to move. Peter Townsend says, please don't take him. He's the only thing that makes me happy. And Elizabeth just doesn't understand it. Similar to Charles. She just does not understand how the privilege and money and horses are not enough to keep her kids happy. Why do they need to be in love? Why do they need to feel things? Why do they need anything? Um, which is really, really devastating. And I just struggle to believe that she could be that obtuse as a mother. I yeah. think Peter Morgan can think women are that obtuse, but I just don't think that's true. Yeah, I, the narrative is hard for me to believe. Yeah. Um, and Anne says that one of the other things that's getting hard is she can't control the narrative of the press and she's scared because she's feeling like she's in a fishbowl which i think foreshadows what happened to diana what happened to megan markle what happened to kate when she was dating um a prince and, and um what happened to margaret right so uh the queen seems to be above being in that fishbowl but the people who surround her are not and the queen gives the same advice she gives in every single situation no matter what whether it be divorce or diarrhea she says this too shall pass because that's her only solution so uh so that's how that lunch went john what's your verdict how do you rate uh Anne? i'm gonna give her a nine and how do you think she rates with the queen i think she's like number two number two Anne will always solidly be her second favorite. I agree with that. I agree. I'm going to give her a nine out of 10. The lack of point is because I can't support anyone who's in a system that upholds white supremacy. But I do think she's the most uh, grounded of the children. I think for the queen, she's probably a seven out of 10. Um, I think, uh, I think something that maybe was not in her favor is that there's a bit of jealousy of how much Philip admires her. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And Philip has a different connection with her. Right. Right. Um, then we get Andrew. Ugh. Talk me through this one because I hate him so much. I'll start filming at the mouth. Okay. So Prince Andrew is a pedophile. Um, and he was good friends with Jeffrey Epstein, who did not kill himself, <laughs> by the way. 
So we'll just put that out there. And he has been recalled from all of his public duties. So he's not even a public member of the family anymore. I can't, what's the actual terminology? He's not a working royal anymore. He's been he's not a working retired. Royal because he's a pedophile. Anyways, <laughs> um, early in his pedophile years, no. Uh, so um, Andrew uh, arrives uh, by helicopter from the military, um, which just only has this extravagance, which just shows you the so many problems that are wrong here. Um, and make sure to secure and um, out time um, because no one wants these queen lunches. So he's like, I got to come in and I got to go. Um, and he's so arrogant from tossing his hat um, to, you know, being cocky. He's like that prep college boy that you just wanted to like slap in the face. Um, and, you know, but he is sweet in his deference towards the queen and he like fawns over her, which is obviously why um, she's his favorite. Right. Um, very, very normal behavior for predators is they're extremely charismatic. Um, he's known for having been super charming, super charismatic. Um, so that's not surprising. Uh, Peter Morgan is really on the nose with Andrew, and I think it's preemptive so that when they do cover Andrew, um, it doesn't look like they're glorifying him. So he tells his mom that he's dating this like American actress who's like from like soft core porn films, and the queen's kind of horrified. But like, again, oh, he why? like he charms her around this conversation. But then he tells her that the film's about this empower empowered underage girl and like what is effectively a very Epstein like world. And the mom's like, is that even legal? And like he's kind of like, who cares? Like, and it's just like anything legal for us. It was so uncomfortable. It was so on the nose. Um, he then asks what title he'll be given now that he's an adult and it's going to be York. Um, and if any of you know War of the Roses, he's excited about the title York because the Yorks become kings. Uh, even though the queen points out, well, Charles would have to die and you'd have to kill his kids, which historical precedent for that is uh, the two boys in the tower that were killed during the War of the Roses to get a York uh, a York king. So it's it's... It's definitely kind of a dark humor there because historically he would know that like it's not impossible to become a king from where he's at. And was it maybe 300 years earlier? He could probably kill someone. And he would. So, right. And then um, this is important in regards to Edward. He compliments his mom on the poached lunch, right? Um, to soften kind of the jokes he made about like Charles and his kids having to die. And then he does what I think solidifies her impression of him, which is he tells her that he doesn't want to know for sure what's going on, but if they are going to the Falklands, he wants to be a part of it. He wants to be in service. He wants to be in the war. And nothing would make her more proud because she served during the war, right? So it's something that connects them together. Um, and I think why she kind of just melts at him, like being like, I want to go be a war hero. So, ugh. all right, what's your verdict? What's Zero. And what do you think she rates him? Uh, like a, an 11 out of 10. Oh my God, we have the same ratings. A zero out of zero him. of the kids. Like, honest to God, her corgis are all worth more than this godforsaken man. Because remember, uh, and mem in the first season, um, remember, or, or in the second season, what it was is that... Um, you know, she had Charles and she had Anne, and then she wanted to prove her motherhood, her 
womanhood and have another child. And so she has Andrew and Edward as like this, you know, second half that they call each other later on in this season. And that, you know, Anne and uh, Anne and Charles are very much like the first half and Andrew and Edward are very much the second half. And there's a clear distinction. In, and I think showing with how of that affects her relationship with them and then her relationship with herself. Yeah, agreed. I agreed. So, all right. And moving on to the final kid, literally who absolutely doesn't matter. Um, not at all. We, not at all. He literally married a Diana lookalike and still like barely anyone even remembers he's alive. Um, we've got Edward, who's the youngest. Um, he's super stuffy and cocky and he likes to flout that he has so much money. Interestingly, instead of complimenting his mom on the salmon, he makes fun of the salmon and says, oh my God, I bet something with my protection officer that we've had, we would have the salmon because we always have the fucking salmon, right? And you can tell that the queen is like, kind of hurt by like just the callousness in which he's talking about finding her boring right um just there's a callousness in his like disregard for his mother um and he is the only one that is still young enough that feels like just like a bratty kid right um yeah he definitely is like you know to give us our first harry potter reference of the day he's very much like the Who's the Weasley that's the prefect? Oh, Percy. He is a Percy. Percy. He's a Percy. He, he goes around. He loves riding the detention slips, all of that. Right. So he's head boy, but admits that he gets bullied at school for being himself. So he's kind of like, as Eddie Windsor, I'm fine. But as Prince Edward, everyone makes fun of me. But then he tells us that they call him Jaws because of his bracelet bracelets braces they they throw plastic spoons full of spit at him and that they gave him a bottle of wine that was full of piss and they chilled it first right at first i was like oh and then he keeps talking and i'm like never mind you deserved it um yeah it's okay yeah because he then says that like the the way that he's kind of dealing with the stress of being bullied is he's become this vigilante at school um and gets people in trouble for like breaking rules and so he mentions this kid who he wrote up for smoking and the queen's like wait didn't you get caught smoking like a couple months ago and he's like yeah but the rules are different for us right and the queen reminds him that he's been handing a handed a good hand and he's like, well, whatever, like Cambridge and, Os- and Oxford want me, even though we are made to understand that, that his grades are not great. And then he says something that I think is really important. He says that they want him because of who he is and they deserve it for all that they do for this country. And it's like that 13 year old bo- balls haven't dropped boy thinks he's done things for this country. Um, and that's where we get back to Margaret Thatcher and her son and honest to God, White male supremacy is planted, flowered, cut, and bloomed at the feet of women who would rather themselves be victims to it than to not hand it to their children. We have to rank Edward, though. No, I, I for sure. So I'm going to rank Edward overall a two. For the queen, I think he's probably like a four or five. I mean, technically right now he's second in place because the pedophiles made her look bad and she still hates Charles. Yeah, he's definitely a three for me. But I think he's like a four four or a five for the queen. Like, But I think she definitely like, maybe he's like her third favorite. Right, right. 
Um, I think she always hates Charles. Yeah, no, I don't. I just think her hatred of Charles, her lack of thinking he's worthy of anything, right? Because if you remember uh, when she went to meet with her her uncle, her uncle was like, he's not up to it. And she's like, he's not up to it. Like, it seemed to be like a family conclusion that Charles was not going to be a good king. Um, I think what's going to be unfortunate is whether or not the the crown survives the death of Queen Elizabeth II, I really don't think is actually landing on Charles' head. I think that movements worldwide have led to the Commonwealth and monarchy having a ticking time bomb on them. And it's not Charles's fault, but I do think it's funny that if, if you were to look at historically, they all thought that he would bring down the monarchy either way. So, um, so yeah, interesting. And then we kind of close out this episode with the queen's kind of looking at pictures of her childhood, her parents. Um, she like meets up with her mom and Margaret and she's like, I need a drink. And to be honest, I think those are her favorite people. I think her favorite people are her mom, Margaret, and Philip. I and think it's honestly her sister. I think she truly I, I do too. Her. I think the love of her life was her sister. That was the best episode of the last season when Margaret does try to kill herself. And that yeah. scene between them where she's like, you can't go. It's, I, it was, the acting is incredible because her sister also reminds her of like, she actually wanted her job. Right. Right. And we do get that reminder later in the season, which we'll cover um, that Elizabeth still stands by. She would have handed it over in a heartbeat. Um, so, so yeah. Um, she, she has a drink with her sister's. Um, I want to know what the queen drinks. I should Google it. I bet you it's like sherry or port or something. Mm-hmm. Or no, she's famous for drinking. Is it martinis? I'll find out for the next episode so we can all drink some. But then she has a conversation with Philip and he asks if she reached a, con- a conclusion, right? And um, apparently all the kids went to the dad to be like why are we having these lunches which is a tiny insight which we know from biographies that the kids are actually really close to philip um and i think that that is kind of telling um and she tells him actually i think they're not doing well at all i don't think they're i think they're all in deserts i think they're not she goes they're all troubled (laughs) they're they need Jesus. They and, all uh, need Jesus and all the saints. They need Jesus, Dolly Parton, uh, Dan Levy. They need a lot of help. Um, and she also is open and candid enough with Philip to be like, what if it was me? Like, what if it was the fact that I wasn't a good mom? I didn't enjoy mothering. Like, I kind of just, like, had an, like this abhorrence to all these things that I was supposed to do as a mother. And that's a very real moment of her saying, it wasn't the crown that kept me from, like, giving my kids baths or playing with them. It was me. It was me. What if I broke them? And Peter, like a, Peter, Philip, like everyone else in the family says, get over it. You're a good mom. Even though the soundtrack during that scene says otherwise. Well, she tells and the then, story of the bath, you know? She yeah. She says she just couldn't bring herself to do it. Right. And that is a very important distinction between I had to go on royal tours as being a queen versus I really just couldn't bring myself to touch their wet, slippery little bodies that I didn't want to touch, right? Like, look, that is what we get in that scene, which I think is very important. Um, so, but Philip tells her to get over it. She's, she's a fine mom and it's not her problem. She's the queen. And then we go to war. We, we, go, war. To, we go to war. And that's where this episode ends. Yep. Did you enjoy this episode? 
I thought it was a great, I think it is a great episode. It's a filler episode because there's It did feel like filler. There was definitely a theme um, because of obviously the Charles, Diana, all of these different themes that are going on. So it definitely is a filler episode, but I did enjoy it because the acting is really good from Olivia Coleman in this episode, like truly superb. Um, and you really start to see her children in this way where they're going to become characters in the show. And they are becoming characters in the show. Charles and Anne have been on for a season already, but we're starting to see Edward and Andrew, you know, who knows what roles they'll play. I mean, I'm interested to see who's cast to play them in the next season. Yes. Yes. Um, so, all right, John. Well, that's the whole episode. Who was your favorite? It's Anne. It's Anne. It's the Corgis. I don't like any of them. It's the Corgis. That's it. That's all I've got. That's it. Yeah. That's. How about you? You know, I struggle with this one, and it's not. I don't know if it's if it's um, Charles because I just want to slap him. But like. And just like, be like, let's shake them a little bit. But I have to think it's Anne. There's, I loved Anne last season and I really love her this season. But also then here's I the, really love thing. Margaret. If you ask me who I relate to the most, it's Charles actually, which is an unrelenting devotion to self. I, I'm, I'm a pretty selfish person. And, and also I am absolutely uncompromising on my values and on my like, determination to live by certain principles and so there's a part of me with Charles that really relates to like if I was forced into a marriage it's just not gonna work and I'm gonna do things my way and like that's it like but the one I like the most Anne yeah 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 so Queen Anne all right John then I will see you next week see you bye John bye Thank you.